0: Hey, Jay, you know who I miss? Blacksmith.
1: Did your imaginary
0: horse throw an imaginary shoe, Miles? No, you know, the little dude with the big eyes. Cable's friend. Ah, yeah,
1: that is definitely a name tailored for a visual medium, what with all the gratuitous cues. What's his deal, anyway?
0: I know he's a mutant. No, he's not. Really? Well, not an X gene mutant, at least. Huh. Well, what's the little dude been up
1: to? Ah, what hasn't he been up to? He's been messing with the time stream, convincing Kid Cable to kill his older counterpart. Wait, he was behind that? Running a chain of convenience stores. What? I'm Jay Editon.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes.
1: And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did... Welcome to episode 253 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And speaking of soap opera, so we are in an important era of X-Men right now. We are in the lead-up to the wedding of Scott Summers and Jean Grey.
1: Oh, I was gonna say Prefalanx Covenant, but, you know,
0: that, that too, I guess. It can be both of those things. So the issues that we're covering today, we're going to be talking about Uncanny X-Men 308, 309, and 310. And these are sort of the Uncanny X-Men proposal trilogy. Basically, the first issue is where the actual proposal occurs, and it's all about Scott and Gene. The second issue is all about Xavier, and sort of kind of Magneto, but not really, we'll get there. And the third issue is largely Scott and Cable, all reacting to this big change that's going to happen in the lives of the X-Men.
1: Now, we covered these way back in episode 22 from September 2014, but we shoved a lot of material into that episode, and we kind of did it out of order. So we're looking at them again, um, and all of this stuff again, back in context, now that we've reached it chronologically.
0: And I'm glad that we are, because especially having read over these again, and taken notes and written outlines, I think these are stories that are really going to benefit from being given room to breathe. These are actually some of my favorite issues of Uncanny X-Men, especially number 308, which is probably in the running for my number one, I have to say.
1: The writing's very good. The art—and I remember talking about this back in 22 as well— the art is is definitely the most, like, everyone is a horrifying wax dummy era of John Romita Jr.,
0: I actually find that I've softened on the art a fair bit as well. Like, some of these issues, especially number 309, were a little too talky for me as a kid, and John Romita Jr.'s art of this era, as I've mentioned before in the podcast, turns me right off, but now I like them both a lot better, even if those cheekbones are legit horrifying. You know,
1: 309 and 310... I think the art's much, much more solid. And I realized that part of that is because they're less focal on Jean Grey, who, and, and modern Jean, not flashback Jean, is kind of where all of the really horrific Uncanny Valley stuff happens. Like, I am 99% sure that she does not blink at all over the course of the story in 308.
0: What if the book back in 1963 had instead been titled Stan Lee and Jack Kirby's The Uncanny Valley? Although I guess it wasn't really uncanny back then, so, all oh, that parallel falls down.
1: Has there ever been an X-Men arc, or at least story, called Uncanny Valley? There, there really should be.
0: There really, really should be. Or the Uncanny Valley girl, about, I don't know, maybe Jubilee or something. Nah, nah, it's taking it too far. Nah, taking it too far. That that does happen around these parts. So, normally, this is the part where I would say, Previously, on X-Men! And we'd give a lot of background, but honestly, a lot of the background that comes up comes up within the context of and as part of the stories themselves.
1: Yeah, the thing that manages to pad a fairly short event out into a trilogy is that these three issues are primarily composed of extensive flashbacks.
0: And flashbacks that work really well, and some of them are retconned in, some of them are reproduced from previous issues, and they're all recontextualized in the context of of what's going on here, of Scott and Gene finally deciding to get hitched and everybody reacting to that.
1: Well, and of some some other stuff that it brings up or that that is tangentially relevant to it.
0: So with all of that said, let's dive into one of my personal favorite issues of X-Men, Uncanny X-Men number 308, Mixed Blessings. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, with pencils by John Romita Jr. and the various cheekbones he brings with him, inks by Dan Green and Al Vey, and colors by Steve Buccalato.
1: Thanksgiving morning, a morning where the very air snaps with the promise of change. Where the bright crispness commands a lifting of hearts and a joining of spirits.
0: This issue is just happy. I mean, it's bittersweet here and there, but by and large, it's about the X Men as family. It's about their history as the history of family, of a chosen family.
1: It's also got really good B plot which is always a plus. One of the things about Quiet or your conversation-driven episodes is they often work best when there's something much more active going on in the background, and that's done really well here.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, if it was just all Scott and Jean talking about their relationships in their past, I mean, I'm not saying that couldn't be a good issue, but I think it's a better one because as that's going on, we have all these scenes of the X-Men doing various stuff, various autumnal, fun, silly stuff. And... If you're going to have Scott Summers and Jean Grey, the first two X-Men, finally tie the knot after teasing that for so long, after their relationship having built and grown for so long, doing it within the context of the X-Men is the way to do it. Because these are two people—I mean, obviously they have families, from Space Pirates to Elaine's and John's—but these are people, I think, more than almost anybody else for whom the X-Men is their world, is their family.
1: Agreed. They've, yeah, they they both have their own families, but you know Scott hasn't basically grew up without his and Jean largely grew up at Xavier's mansion. I mean, I I think almost almost more in in relative isolation than than the other X Men.
0: Yeah, and so as this issue opens on uh, Thanksgiving Day, I believe right it's a day in autumn and, and Thanksgiving factors in. I think this is the actual day of it. Scott and Jean and their cheekbones walk through this beautiful like, red and brown foliaged crisp day in these comfy-looking coats, reminiscing about one of their first moments of connection. And the scene they reminisce about is totally a retcon inserted between X-Men number one and X-Men number two. It's the secret origin of how Gene learned that Scott's name was not, in fact, Slim on his birth certificate. But wouldn't that have to be— I thought he didn't get named Scott till three. I thought it was number two, but I could be wrong.
1: almost certain it's three. But I could also be wrong.
0: Well, anyway, the internet tells me that this takes place between number one and two, and as we know, the internet is never wrong about anything. But this is something—
1: Miles, I hate to break this to you.
0: Yeah, well. But this is something that I think Scott Lobdell does exceptionally well. Um, We've seen this before with some Harry's Hideaway stuff, some old stories of the X-Men as students and as kids. He dances between the raindrops pretty deftly in terms of— adding little bits of backstory that make the Silver Age feel a lot more lived in, that make the Silver Age feel as sort of densely, lovingly crafted as the Bronze Age would become. Yeah, yeah, great. So this glorious scene uh, involves Scott, or sorry, Slim, working on one of those, you know, danger room spiked balls in this off-limits area of the danger room, and he's surprised by Jean Grey.
1: Being Silver-Edge,
0: Scott immediately panics that no one's supposed to be in the danger room while he's fixing it. The truth is, I'm not here to do anything unauthorized. I just stopped by to talk. With you. Me? Really? Um,
1: oh, sure, okay. I guess if you're here, maybe you can hand me a wrench or something?
0: Such a glorious dork! And Jean asks Slim his real name, and he says Scott. And then he trips and falls, and she telekinetically catches him. Like, Lobdell writes, and John Romita Jr. draws them as just so young and adorable, and it really does feel like these characters as teenagers. A lot of the time, you just see them as sort of generic, slightly younger versions of themselves in the Silver Age. And with this, they have that, just that awkwardness where every single moment feels so dramatic and important and terrifying.
1: One of the things Lovdell remembers in this issue, which I really appreciate, is that Jean is relatively poorly socialized as well. Like in a lot of ways, she's the one of the X-Men who who kind of broke out and did her own thing and got to got to person around for a while as a young adult. But she pretty much grew up in complete isolation.
0: And you see that. You see the fact that after she learned Scott's name, she just sits there looking at him and that's what causes him to freak out and trip. Like she's just sort of staring at him cuz yeah, she doesn't really know how people work. She's just operating on sheer enthusiasm and good-naturedness. It's very Zonker Harris. Oh man, Jean Grey as Zonker Harris.
1: No, we've already we've already firmly established that Bobby is the Zonker Harris of the original 5.
0: Okay, so wait, who would who would Jean be in terms of Joesbury characters?
1: I mean, the specific context I have for this is that that Max of waiting for the trade um, drew me the the x, an x factor redo of the the Dunesbury strip where they're convincing Roland, Roland Headley um, that Walden Puddle is is a, a weird perpetual drug fueled orgy.
0: Oh yeah, I saw that strip. It was delightful. I love Max's art.
1: It is it is one of the greatest birthday presents I have ever gotten, and 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 continues to warm my my terrible crunchy. Uh, withered nerdy heart.
0: (laughs) So, as Scott and Gene are reminiscing about Scott being awkward and Gene being awkward and it being lovely, the other X-Men are all doing their thing on the grounds nearby. Gambit, Rogue, and Iceman are trying to convince Bishop to help them build Thanksgiving Scarecrows, as, we are assured, is totally traditional.
1: First of all, no it's not. Second... I think it's important to point out here that they are specifically building a Doctor Doom Scarecrow.
0: Well well Iceman's making one anyway. Do you think they're all working together? Do you think like that their shared goal is Doctor Doom, like they got together and they're like, all right, what's this year's Scarecrow theme? How are we gonna do this? How are we gonna collaborate?
1: I I just assume
0: that they always build Doctor Doom Scarecrows. Huh. If Scarecrow only had a brain, Scarecrow would crush all who opposed him, and that fool Richards. Exactly. Yeah. So this makes me think, though. So they're telling Bishop about the Thanksgiving Scarecrow thing. Bishop's from the future. He doesn't know how the present works. Do you think they just continually make up these customs and keep trying to come up with more and more outlandish ones just to see what he'll buy?
1: I think that Iceman definitely does.
0: (laughs) So speaking of these characters here, though, so they're hanging out. And I mentioned, like, you know, Scott and Gina are in their comfy fall clothes. And most characters are Gambit, though. Gambit. Is wearing a backward cap and shades, yellow and red bike shorts, baggy socks, blue fingerless gloves, and this blue and yellow giant poofy sleeved crop top, and he's got his hair down, and I don't even know what's happening. Like, I lived through the 90s, and I don't remember that, but, like, I wish I did. I wish everybody had dressed like that in the 90s. I wish everybody dressed like that now. Does Does he refer to anyone as fellow kids? I can only assume so, but it's like with that Cajun accent that you're pretty sure he just makes up. I just realized something. What's that?
1: So you know those things that aren't really even so much headcanon because you don't think them, they're just kind of in the background and you never question them, they're just sort of an inherent thing that shades your read of a comic? Sure, yeah. And then finally you realize and I articulate them? I realized that I have just gone through my life never questioning the idea that Gambit owns— every outfit Vanilla Ice wears in the movie Cool as Ice.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Gambit is the ultimate peacock, and Vanilla Ice, at least for a time, was the ultimate rap peacock.
1: Do you think that Gambit has ever shaved his own name into the side or back of his head?
0: I think he's probably tried to convince a bunch of his girlfriends to shave his name into the sides of their heads, and, like, none of them have done it.
1: I bet he tried to do it himself once, and it came out really badly, and so he had to just buzz it.
0: Right, right, like everyone thought it just said Rome or Ram or something, and he got really upset. Garbs? Garbs? Oh, if he did his code name. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah. so the point is that Bishop doesn't understand how Scarecrow's could possibly enhance mansion security, because Bishop is so very Bishop, and he rambles about how in his time, uh, all the kids didn't build Scarecrow's, they instead fled the M-Plates who were going to suck out their mutant marrow.
1: First of all... Bold of Bishop to assume, given that they're going on the Xavier Mansion lawn, that these Scarecrows aren't going to have, like, built-in laser guns. Fair. Second, wait, the the M-plate sucked out What?
0: Uh, The Marrow of Mutant Children, and this is actually really cool, because one of the Generation X villains a little bit ahead of this in continuity will be a character named Emplate, who sucks out Mutant Marrow. So as soon as he shows up, the attentive reader would be like, wait a minute, I've heard of Emplate plural, Emplate's, oh shit, is this guy where they come from? And yeah, I I think it totally is. So, I don't know, it's just a nice little continuity bit about you. That's, That's a super creepy power. Uh, I mean, M-Plate is super creepy, especially the way Chris Pachalo draws him. Fair enough. Well, Marrow aside, and not that Marrow, she won't show up for a long time, it's time for another Scott and Jean flashback, as Jean flashes back to something that happened shortly after she learned Scott's name, when she was talking with Xavier. And I actually love this scene. I love this version of Xavier and Jean's interaction, and that's not a sentence I often say. So at this point, Xavier's just up front with Gene. It's In this version of Continuity, he's honest and open about the fact that he helped her suppress her telepathy after her friend Annie died and Jean went comatose for a while so that Jean's telepathy could develop on its own. And this is a good retcon because the way it was initially, of course, uh, Xavier lent Jean some of his telepathy when he went into seclusion, which makes no goddamn sense. And then later on, it was that he just suppressed her telepathy and maybe she knew about it, maybe she didn't. And with this, they were, you know, partners in the whole plan.
1: I, I gotta say, I have trouble taking seriously any era that also insists that magnetism can block telepathy, so... The Silver Age is iffy anyway. But, but yeah, the other thing that he tells her is, well, your, te- your telepathy is re-emerging
0: because you're having some feelings. Right, it's because she's having a crush on Scott. And I appreciate how excited she is and that Xavier is just, like, chill and quiet and totally supportive. Like, she asks what'll happen if he doesn't love her back, and he just says... It's called a risk child. Like this is sort of father figure Xavier in a way that I fully completely support. This is the Xavier that I love.
1: I do kind of feel like that he should warn her that her telepathy is specifically developing in the direction of the functional
0: equivalent of a pit trap. Hey, Scott's a good guy. He's just he's just hard mode. Yeah, no, but his his brain is like the worst place. Well, she's got to learn sometime how to navigate terrible brains. I mean,
1: it's it's definitely, definitely starting by, by diving into the deep end.
0: Yup. But this scene also, I can't help but think about the portrayal of Xavier in the movies, and I don't want to go into further detail because Dark Phoenix just came out recently, but I will say that the version right here is certainly my favorite version of Xavier, and the one in the movies is uh, not necessarily always bad.
1: Well, I think one of the great things about Xavier in this era, and we talked about this before, too, is that this is an Xavier who's coming to start to relate to his adult students as peers, or at least as
0: fellow adults. And that's so much of this specific era of X-Men, like the issues that we're covering in this episode and the wedding after it. And it's wonderful. And then there's going to be Onslaught, and that'll be a thing, and then fucking deadly Genesis, grumble, grumble, grumble. But for right now, we're still in heartwarming land, because as the X-Men are playing football, there's another reminiscence. And this one is from Scott about the climax of the Dark Phoenix saga, when Dark Phoenix sacrificed herself on the moon.
1: Yeah, and this is this is especially interesting if, if you've read a couple of the what-if stories in which Phoenix actually permanently replaces Jean. But... In this particular context, as he's remembering this, um, Scott remarks that it was Jean's inherent goodness reaching out of Jamaica Bay or the heart of the Phoenix who was emulating her that much that made the Phoenix decide to do what she did to fight, but also to sacrifice itself to ultimately to save everyone.
0: That's one of the things I really like about Scott and Jean's relationship. Scott is very much the leader. He's very much the one who just angsts all over the place, even though Jean's been some shit, too. But it's always so clear how much admiration and respect he has for who Gene is, how just blown away he is by how somebody could be that powerfully compassionate and passionate and dedicated and confident. And when you have an issue that's going to turn into their proposal, like, yeah, let's get that stuff right out front. And this issue does.
1: One of the other things that I really appreciate about Scott in this context, and again, this goes back to that specific what-if issue, whose number I cannot remember off the top of my head, but is that he per- is really persistent about acknowledging the Phoenix as, if not part of this gene, as someone who was still legitimately
0: Gene. Right, and given that Gene has absorbed the memories of both the Phoenix Force and Madeline Pryor, I think that's a really cool way of doing it.
1: Well, but also given that the Phoenix genuinely believed itself to be Jean.
0: Yeah, no, that's very true. Scott just doesn't question that. I mean, he could be a total dick about it, and he kind of never is. The football game in the background has gone powers, despite having been implied no powers. And of course, it's just utter chaos. And when you have Beast and Jubilee and Gambit as three of the primary players in this football game, it makes it even better. They are all delightful.
1: Beast and Jubilee are the ones who start it. And I really like the two of them as mutual agents of chaos. That's a role that they they collectively play periodically during this time,
0: and it's, it's pretty much always great. Well, it's also great because, as Jean points out, Jubilee hasn't really smiled or laughed much since Logan left the team, and she finally is. Those wounds are finally starting to heal for her, and that's so just heartwarming
1: and this is also a really really dark era for hank and jubilee in general seems to give him permission to be a version of himself that he is less and less finding himself able to or willing to be
0: yeah this is like bouncing blue beast avengers era hank mccoy and it's really nice to see him i mean it's not nearly as stoned as avengers era hank well yeah but i mean who is
1: Probably Rachel Summers a lot of the time.
0: Yeah. And of course, Zonker Harris. Miles, nobody's a stone to Zonker Harris. Okay, well, he wins.
1: So anyway, yeah, they, they're 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 all um playing playing football with all powers activated and, and shit talking to beat the band, as Gambit says.
0: Come to papa, little bolly. It's a very weird thing to say. And Beast replies.
1: Casting aspersions upon its heritage is no way to endear oneself to the pigskin in
0: question. I never really thought about Beast and Gambit's dynamic, because even though they're on the same team a lot, like, there's not a lot of memorable stuff there, but they're delightful together.
1: Yeah, yeah, they are. They're extremely good at playing off each other.
0: And as the chaos continues, the football ends up in Xavier's lap because he's come out to tell everyone that dinner's ready, and there's just this crash of sound effects as all of the X-Men smash into him. And it's—I mean, he's fine. Spoiler, he's, he's totally fine, just a little banged up. But it's so delightfully just family-style hilarious, I guess?
1: Yeah, um, the the general vibe, and and Xavier is very much part of it, is of a family that is loving and combative and difficult.
0: Very much all of those things. And so of course Scott goes to hell, because what else would Scott do? Until Jean interrupts him by proposing. And Scott is floored, because of course he proposed to her back in X-Factor number 53 way back in the day— But at the time, she had too many memories about their relationship that weren't hers, that instead belonged to the phoenix who was impersonating her, or to Madeline Pryor.
1: Right, she had just absorbed both of their memories.
0: But now she figures their love is strong enough to change the future that seems to have been planned for them. It is, as I know is one of our our favorite Scott and Jean phrases, stronger than destiny.
1: Well, it certainly outlived her.
0: Uh, Yeah, well, poor Irene. And Scott says yes after a moment of confusion and and disbelief. And regarding that moment, as Scott asks her what she said, she replies in the original printing of Uncanny X-Men number 308 with a blank speech bubble.
1: Oh, damn. That's extremely funny.
0: The actual line, as the panel is printed correctly in the letters column of Uncanny X-Men number 310 is, I'm tired of waiting, Scott. And it's not that it's a really amazing line or anything, although I think it fits the dialogue well. It's just, of all the freaking panels to miss putting a speech bubble in... I I love the idea that she's just sort of meaningfully glaring or something. She lets her cheekbones do the talking. But this is just so... It's perfect, and I really do like that when Scott and Jean get married, it's Jean that proposes. Because Scott's the leader of the X-Men. In a way, Jean has always been the one in that couple who's been sort of the most propulsive and sort of gently nudging in their relationship. And so it seems only fitting that that's what happens here.
1: But also she is a character who is very pointedly, and, you know, we mentioned the stronger than Destiny and pushing it back against Destiny, and that's something she talks about a lot explicitly in this issue. And for Jean, I think making taking a step this big, it's incredibly important for her to feel like it's on her own initiative
0: exactly because i mean with all these alternate timelines with all these various clones and cosmic forces like well and future and and future kids right they talk about their alternate universe daughter Rachel Summers they talk about their not exactly their son Nathan Christopher Charles Ascani Dayspring etc summers like There have been so many visions of how Scott and Gene are supposed to be, or how they almost were, but things were a little bit different. And with this, this is Gene saying, no, this is ours. This is specifically this version of us, and we're doing it because we want to. Fuck yeah. And so everybody heads to Thanksgiving dinner, including the uh, slightly bandaged-up Charles Xavier, since the Blue and the Gold teams blew and golded their way into his face. And Xavier has a little speech, because of course he does. He talks about how, for him, Thanksgiving is sort of like the equivalent of New Year's Day, that it's time to reflect, to be grateful, and there is this wonderful double-page-wide panel as he's speaking of all of the attendees of the dinner. We have Iceman and his parents, we have Psylocke, Bishop, Archangel, Forge, Storm, Xavier himself, Moira McTaggart, Banshee, Jubilee, Beast, Trish Tilby, Revanche, Rogue, Gambit, and Stevie Hunter, and there is just such a feeling of this overstuffed group of people where everyone nonetheless belongs.
1: It seems really weird that Iceman is the one whose parents are there. His parents
0: are kind of assholes, it's true. They're terrible, and they really hate the X-Men. Well, they're at least putting on a good face, and it's a happy issue, so maybe they don't want to fuck it up. Alright. And Xavier acknowledges, as I think he should, and as you did before, Jay, that this has been a really rough year for the team. I mean, between Iliana and Colossus and Logan and the world going to hell in any number of other ways. But they've grown stronger, and they've grown together. And I especially like one of his sentences toward the end of this speech, which honestly is something that I really want to hang on to in this modern era.
1: Perhaps these darker moments act as a signpost along our journey towards, hopefully, a better place.
0: Yeah, the idea that even the hard parts at least are steps along the way to what you can only hope, what you can only have belief, however unfounded, is going to be a better future. I mean, what else can you do? Make it. Valid, valid answer. Scott and Gene, of course, have their own announcement and realize pretty quickly that this is the time to announce it.
1: I guess there there wasn't a, a funeral to crash because that's that's the usual point where you do momentous stuff right now.
0: Right. Well, we missed the funeral crashing, but at least we get Jubilee very much being Jubilee. Don't tell me she finally got a code name. But Scott and Gene do, of course, say what's going on. And everyone is just so happy and so supportive. Everyone's raising their hands and their glasses and clasping everyone's shoulders and smiling. And Xavier is just sort of quiet in the background, smiling himself, looking at the sunset, sort of bittersweet, knowing that the world's still a rough place. But it's just this one beautiful win that the X-Men get. It's this moment of things being okay amid this phenomenally dark era.
1: I'd like to think that they will spend the next several months non-stop trolling Bishop about matrimonial tradition.
0: (laughs) Actually, I think there is some of that later. I love Lucas Bishop. Good. As there should be. So that's the proposal. Uh, Certainly my favorite issue of this era, but these other two are pretty fascinating as well, so let's just go directly into Uncanny X-Men number 309, When the Tigers Come at Night.
1: Because somehow we're still not over the as references. This is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Dan Green and Joel Holdridge, and colored by Steve Buccalato. Spoiler, most of this issue takes place in Charles Xavier's Weird Brain.
0: And as such, it's a whole lot of dialogue. A whole lot of dialogue. And I remember when I was a kid, I loved 308... But I didn't love 309. I thought 309 was kind of boring, I guess because there was very little action. It was just the same couple characters. There weren't a lot of colorful people running into each other playing football. Not that I liked football, but still. But reading this as an adult, this is an incredibly strong issue.
1: Yeah, it's terrific. It's so, so good. And the framing story of this issue is Charles Xavier having a conversation in a dream with an initially obscured therapist and or interrogator who gradually turns out to be Magneto.
0: And I love how this is slowly revealed. Specifically, it's slowly revealed to the reader and to Xavier while Xavier is talking to this unknown person about Magneto.
1: Well, and this is, we should, we should say too, it's not exactly Magneto because it's, it's he's not in costume. He's, he's as, as Eric Lencher.
0: Well, actually, one of the details I like is that underneath his kind of, I don't know if it's supposed to be a lab coat or an overcoat or what, but when Magneto gets really mad at Xavier at one point, when Xavier's sort of deluding himself, when he's putting up this false story rather than admitting his own culpability uh, in some bad stuff he did, at that point, this Magneto stands up and he is wearing the supervillain costume under that long coat. And I love that we only see it when he gets mad at Xavier.
1: Yeah, that's a nice touch. Now... As you imply, Magneto is mostly there to call out Charles's hypocrisy and the lies he tells himself, sort of like a very violent, metallic Jiminy Cricket. Can you imagine having Magneto as your conscience? Because that's how you get Onslaught.
0: Well, and in fact, while we could just see this as purely symbolic, uh, this story does work very well as a an early retroactive hint of the fact that Xavier has absorbed a little bit of Magneto's mind when he ripped it out at the end of Fatal Attractions.
1: So I actually really love the conceit of Magneto as Xavier's conscience. Because in a lot of ways, I mean Magneto is is ruthless and he is in a lot of ways villainous and terrible, and in a lot of ways amoral or immoral. But he's also ruthlessly honest in ways that very directly counterbalance the ways in which Charles Xavier tends to lie to himself yeah also to others but first and foremost and centrally to himself which is what this story is about and it's predicated on the fact that he resents the hell out of Scott and Jean's engagement and out of uh, and out of the two of them for having that chance at
0: happiness And so, Magneto, despite the fact that Xavier's like, no, I'm totally fine, I'm totally happy, I would never uh, abuse my powers or do anything weird, my my relationships with women are totally normal, in her head, Magneto's like, dude, no. Let's play This Is Your Telepathic Life. Let's talk about your past relationships with women. Let's talk about your relationship with your mother, with Moira McTaggart and Amelia Vogt.
1: And in each of those... What starts is Xavier sort of telling the sanitized version of the narrative that he's, he's, he's come to sort of embrace as part of his mythos and Magneto being like, nope. And the comic redraws and retells the same scenes over and over and over again as Magneto again and again is like, nope, that's not true. That's not what actually happened.
0: Yeah, and I I love the way this is done. I actually really love this scene with Xavier and his mother where he's like, yeah, my mother was totally a saint. She was amazing. And Magneto's like, no, dude, you resented her for being too weak to stand up to your abusive stepfather. You resented her because she was supposed to be the parent. And Xavier just denies and denies this. And this reminds me so much of the way he looks at his own dream, at his ethics, at his love for his students, like especially Scott and Jean, Mm -hmm. you know? He just wants everything to be clean. He wants to be the good guy. He wants a simple world where all the good guys are perfect. And that's not the world. And Magneto actually accuses Xavier of continuing to find people Women who need him, and then losing interest once they no longer do. And oh god damn! I mean, they even bring up Gabrielle Haller, the woman that Xavier had a relationship with when he was telepathically treating her. Which yes, she would definitely fall into that category. And he was totally an inappropriate shithead about that whole thing. And his inner Magneto calls him out.
1: Yeah, um, this is this is terrific, and it's also something that underlines. One of the things that I always come back to in conversations about Charles Xavier and his ethics and whether he's a villain and whether he's a jerk, which is that it doesn't really matter what his intentions are, his capability for self-delusion in combination with telepathy as strong as his is... And with and, and occasionally slightly shaky willingness to use it, as as is explored, in fact, in this issue, pretty much means that he inevitably hurts people and crosses lines.
0: And speaking of, we mentioned that the last woman in the series that Magneto brings up is Amelia Vote. You remember her? She's one of Magneto's acolytes. She first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 300, and that storyline hinted that she and Xavier had some sort of history, but it didn't go into it. And here we go into it.
1: So, Amelia Vogt was a wildly professionally inappropriate nurse who was treating Xavier when he was recovering from his first fight with Lucifer, which at least at this point in time is the one where he first lost the use of his legs. He also grows a depression beard, but it looks fucking awesome, and I wish that he'd actually just have
0: a beard. I agree. So you know the beard that Guido had recently in like Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants' Dead Souls at the end and stuff? Just this big goddamn bushy beard with his bald head? I want to see Xavier do that.
1: I don't really, but this is a good beard. He he wears it well.
0: Yeah. So Amelia and Xavier, as she treats him, they have a relationship. It's actually very much an inverted version of Xavier's relationship with Gabrielle Haller in some ways.
1: Also inappropriate, but less fundamentally creepy in that she's not a telepath and not, and he is he is not in as. He is not in a comparably vulnerable position to Gabrielle. Yes,
0: so it's definitely less creepy, and it does.
1: He is is still in a really vulnerable position, and she does still massively cross professional lines. Yeah, I I don't want to be unclear about that. Absolutely, I don't think it's
0: equivalent. Xavier remembers this, though, as this grand romance while it was going on. And I do really enjoy the page layout. Uh, A lot of the flashbacks here are these very, very dense two-page spreads. And it really adds to the feeling of this having been such an intense, all-encompassing phase of Xavier's life. Like, the whirlwinds that his romance with Amelia Vogt was.
1: Also, it's definitely straight out of, like, a 50s romance novel.
0: Oh, it totally is. So, I have a question here, Jay. So we have Xavier, and we have Amelia vote, and the way he's drawn, he's like a generically late middle-aged dude, and the way she's drawn is like almost every other woman in the Marvel universe, which is as a sexy 20-something lady. So what's the deal? Like, is he younger than he looks? Is she older than she looks? Well, as
1: we know, Charles Xavier was born at roughly 48.
0: Oh, okay. So he just sort of stays there regardless of the chronological age. He's always going to look like that
1: conversely, women don't age. Well, there you go. I kind of like the- Or rather, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Women go from ingenue to Aunt May.
0: Okay, with with really nothing in between. There's just one moment, they wake up, they look in the mirror, and they're like, eh, well, okay, now I'm going to be a herald of Galactus, I guess. Exactly. So, anyway, it turns out they find out that they're both mutants. They've been hiding that from each other and from the world. And for a time, they work together until it becomes clear to Amelia that Xavier is building- the X-Men.
1: She is extremely not down with it, and she leaves him. And Xavier has to play through this scene three times, with Magneto calling him out repeatedly for rewriting it, until he tells himself and Dream Magneto the truth, which is that he briefly controlled her to try to stop her from leaving.
0: Yeah, for just a moment, he took over her mind to get her from walking away, and she immediately knew, and then she left. And we don't know what happened between that moment And when she ended up becoming an acolyte of Magneto's, is it directly related? Is it not? I don't know, but what it is is fascinating because her original reason for not wanting to join up with Xavier to found the X-Men is that she worried it would create this genetic arms race, that if mutants didn't just live quietly in the background, it would turn into this horrible war and they would be horribly persecuted. She basically pre-blames humanity hating and fearing mutants on what Xavier and Magneto were doing.
1: Yeah, she is even more of a diehard assimilationist than Xavier at his worst.
0: And so it's a bit ironic that you have rain on your wedding day. I mean that uh, she ends up becoming one of Magneto's toughest, most hardline acolytes.
1: Now, once Xavier has grappled with this bit of his history, Jean comes in and wakes him up, and Professor Xavier gives her some earnest but weird marital advice. And, like... If you've ever had a a relative pull you aside and tell you really seriously, you know, something that's clearly referencing something very specific, but you kind of don't want to know what, and you're clearly also not supposed to ask, but it's kind of uncomfortable and also very vehement, like, this is kind of like that. Oh, I
0: thought it was sweet. I thought it really showed, you know, the relationship as adults together of being supportive of each other and loving each other.
1: Oh, it's sweet. It's just also awkward as
0: hell. Well, thankfully, Jean has a very high tolerance for awkward. I mean, she's engaged to Scott Summers. She's going to be fine. Valid point. <laughs> I really am glad, though, that this was Jean on her own waking Xavier up. Like, Because in this era, in this, this storyline, this trilogy, it could have easily been Scott and Jean together. But she's always had this uniquely, I guess, peer type relationship with Xavier in this era like yeah he kind of raised her but they're also two adults who very much see each other and respect each other as such and it's so nice to get a little look at that you know
1: yeah I also really appreciate that something that never comes up in this issue and so easily could have I guess they hadn't decided to go in that direction yet is the whole Xavier had feelings for Jean
0: thing i mean i guess you could read amelia vote looking kind of like she's part of that
1: i don't i it's really not it's really not in here and like you can you can bend over backwards to retcon it in but it's very explicitly not to the point that the thing that he resents that he's upset upset about with regards to to scott and gene is that it's the two of them breaking off and having their own life in a way that he's denied himself by being an asshole.
0: Right, exactly. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm completely on the same page, Jay. I feel like if I could expunge one panel from X-Men history, from all of X-Men history, it would be the one from that early issue of the series in the 60s where Xavier's like, oh, I love Jean, but she could never love me because I'm in a wheelchair. Like, let's just like never talk about that again. Ever, ever, ever.
1: Unfortunately, we're going to have to because it's going to come up an onslaught.
0: Fucking onslaught.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I really wish, I, I agree with you, I wish that that could have just been stricken from the record forever.
0: You know what I like more than Onslaught? Uncanny X-Men number 310, Show Me the Way to Go Home.
1: Um, this is, again, written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by John Romita Jr., inked by Dan Green, and colored by uh, Steve Buccalato. I, I fucking love this issue. It panders shamelessly to my deep affection for very sincere Summer's family nonsense.
0: And speaking of Summer's family nonsense, so we haven't really been covering the Cable series, but this takes place right as Cable number six through eight has just ended. This is a three-issue story called Fathers and Sons that we mentioned briefly when we did our Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix uh, winter special episode. But that's basically a story that we can sum up by saying Cable and Cyclops find out for sure that Cable was the real Nathan Christopher Summers and Strife was the clone, so therefore Cable is Cyclops' actual, literal, in every way son.
1: They haven't really come to terms with this fact. Um, And also, this issue opens with the narrator yelling at Cyclops, which is always a promising creative choice, except, oh my fucking god, there is so much of it.
0: Yeah, seriously, this is like Angry Claremontian Narrator the movie. And, Jay, I gotta say, like, I know sometimes I do narration, sometimes you do narration. I can't imagine anyone in the world but you doing this narration.
1: Okay, meanwhile, I should say that I figured out what this reminds me of, and I will, I will reveal that shortly. <clears throat> anything, Scott Summers? As a mutant born with the genetic ability to fire powerful, yet uncontrollable, optic blasts from your eyes, your personal experience with anything has encompassed, it seems, everything. Up to and including hordes of rampaging evil mutants platoons of pan-galactic invaders, and alternative reality clones of your future self. So, while, yes, you've encountered much since the day you first became the first X-Man, are you man enough, are you brave enough, to confront your past? If yes, turn to page 11. If no, turn to page 17. Seriously, like... The only way I can make sense of this volume of second-person narration is if it's Choose Your Own Adventure. I'm, I'm sorry, I believe that phrase is trademarked. Is it a, a Forking Paths novel? Forking Paths. That, that has some Borgesian implications that I kind of like here. But um, anyway, it continues. Specifically, that night on Earth's moon, when you were called upon to sacrifice your only begotten son, Nathan Christopher Summers, Although this is a memory you've relived in your heart a thousand times, you're nonetheless overcome by a sense of violation at seeing this most intimate of moments displayed using the Danger Room's holographic technology. And then it just keeps fucking going and going and going. Also, um, I, I didn't have a, t- a chance to call it out at the beginning, but I, I I like that he feels the need to specify that the optic blasts come from his eyes as opposed to like somewhere else. Hmm.
0: Butt blasts. I don't know. No, but
1: optic blasts.
0: I know. I love it. It's delightfully redundant. Also, I realized, as you were saying it, that the word pangalactic just always takes me to gargle blaster instead of whatever actually comes after it.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, likewise. Now, the reason this has come up is that while preparing to leave for his bachelor party— Cyclops and Banshee were interrupted by the sounds of something happening in the danger room and came downstairs to see a hologram replaying Cyclops giving up Nathan Christopher on the moon. And so Cyclops immediately tells tells Banshee, yeah, you know what, why don't you just go ahead? I'll uh, deal
0: with this. And what this is ends up being Cable, who in a glorious feat of passive aggression, to contrast with his usual straight-up aggression, has replayed the scene of when he, as a child, was left by his dad. And he is still super bitter about that, because like I said, this is right after the father's and son story, where Cable found out that, yes, that was actually him. And he feels like Cyclops was a jerk dad for doing that.
1: And so he is here for our reckoning.
0: I got the invitation to the wedding. So tell me, what did you have in mind? You were maybe expecting me to carry the rings? I came to say if you're so eager to make amends for dumping your only son some 2,000 years in the future, you're gonna have to start small. Maybe a baseball game? A stroll in the park? Cyclops rejoins. I hardly
1: dumped you, Nathan. Letting go of you was the most difficult decision I'd ever made in my life. I was your father, and that meant doing anything in order to save you from the techno-organic virus that was destroying you. Anything up to and including losing you to Ascani, who apparently kept her word.
0: Save it, Dad. We both saw the holographic simulation. You made the choice as dispassionately as every other command you've ever given in your life. You're the consummate leader. Always going with your first, best instinct and never looking back. Never once questioning your decision or the impact it would have on the life of someone who. the impact it would have on my life! Is that what you
1: think? Do you honestly believe a day has passed that I haven't wondered if I'd done
0: right by you? You didn't look all that shaken up in the hololog.
1: I think it's really important that it's pronounced hololog and not log because
0: that would lead to a whole other set of weird. Cable just wanted his dad to have missed him. That's the main thing. Like, Cable's not really mad about what he says he's mad about. He's not mad about being left to Ascani in the future. He's mad that from what he could tell, Cyclops didn't give a shit. That he was unwanted. He was discarded so easily. And that's so... It's just so human, and that humanizes Cable so much in this era that's all about humanizing Cable. It's also a really
1: neat and interesting thing to see an adult Cable, who at this point is older than his parents, still really upset about and still demanding. Um, And Cyclops counters with a video of him being really upset about it, um, which Cable pretty much discounts but their argument is is then interrupted by by a holographic saber-tooth.
0: yeah because sabertooth using his saber senses has detected an intruder in the mansion who's gotten by mansion security and I really appreciate that a sabertooth appears like holographically the hologram of him still has him in his like raw jumpy clawy bite the position. Like, I assume that whenever he's saying anything, he does that. It's like some people talk with their hands. He talks with his murder regression.
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. Now, someone has broken in, and spe- the someone who has broken in is specifically the executioner. It's weird that they choose this villain as the one to have come up here, considering that executioner's song is all about you know this particular incident, but it's the other executioner and they never
0: bring that up. But I do think that the executioner, Carl Denty, for those keeping track at home... Oh, Carl. He's actually a really good choice here, because as you may recall, Carl Denty's deal is that he uses a bunch of uh, mutant-related technology and weaponry to hunt down evil mutants that he feels haven't paid for their crimes. And hey, there's a really convenient one here in the basement of the X-Mansion. But it's not
1: Sabretooth. It's Emma Frost, who everyone had forgotten was in the X-Mansion basement for like the last
0: year and a half. Yeah, because she was rendered comatose in Uncanny Eczema number 281 quite a while ago. And Carl's take is, okay, I mean, maybe she seemed to reform a little toward the end and she lost her students and that sucked, but she did some bad shit. And to be fair, um, yes, yes, she she did do some bad shit.
1: I mean, considering that the last person we saw him go after was functionally in hospice care...
0: I think the Executioner realizes he's not very good at supervillaining, and so he picks reasonable targets. And that's another reason I'm glad that this is the villain in this issue, because the Executioner sucks enough that Cable and Cyclops, as they fight him, as they defend the comatose Emma Frost, don't break much of a sweat, which means there's plenty of time for them to talk and reconcile as they beat up this punching bag of a supervillain.
1: Now— They Yeah, they manage to to best him very easily and um, then cynically predict that he's going to teleport away, which he does. Um, And Cable wants to go after him, but Scott says something that stops Cable cold. The day we stop showing compassion for our enemy, Nathan, is the day we become the enemy.
0: The day we... Hmm. Where have I heard that before?
1: Now, Scott doesn't know, But we do because we covered the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix in our last winter special. Slim is going to say this in the future, in what what is Cable's distant past, but is still basically an era that's going to start a few weeks in the future and then last for like eight years for Scott. Or no, about 12 years.
0: Yeah. And, God, it's just so poignant, because Cable mentioned something about how, you know, there was this couple that raised him in the future, he wasn't totally alone, but he doesn't even remember their names at this point, and I'm really glad we went out of order and covered the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix first, because it adds such wonderful poignancy here.
1: Yeah, and Cable clearly connects the dots at this point, which is one of the neat bits of this, because, again, it's really cool to see if you know what's coming, and also to see Cyclops reacting to in bafflement, but then knowing— That's going to be happening really soon.
0: Yeah, and so they reconcile.
1: Yeah, and Cable has a big old change of heart.
0: During most of that time, I resented the thought of you not being the person I imagined you'd be when I was a kid. Turns out, you've been that person all along. A person I'm proud to know. And prouder still to be able to call you. My father.
1: Can you imagine how baffling this is for Scott? I think it's adorable. And Scott? Oh, I think so, too. And obviously he's very happy about it, but, like, he has no idea what prompted this sudden revelation or change of heart, and he's not gonna know for years.
0: I mean, I think it's not just Cable realizing the whole slim being Cyclops thing, that is S-L-Y-M from the future Cable's past. I think it's also just that in fighting side-by-side with Cyclops and seeing Cyclops' heart in not just wanting to murder villains and wanting to rehabilitate everyone, he's like, oh, you know— you actually are a really moral, ethical, kind-hearted person, and I was so convinced you didn't give a shit about anyone, least of all me. It's Cable realizing that, like he says, the person he wanted his dad to be, yeah, that actually is who Scott is.
1: Much, much later, incidentally, there's going to be a kind of great callback to this, where Scott and Gene and Cable have a conversation where they all acknowledge that they all know that that Gene and Scott were slim and red, and... Um, in which they will also give Cable a baseball glove and then go outside to play
0: catch. Oh man, I'm getting all teary-eyed just thinking about that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really inordinately charming, and the direction in which especially Scott and Nathan's relationship goes after this, and the extent to which it's never quite easy, is something that I really,
0: really like. Agreed.
1: Now, though... Um, They have a nice moment, and then Cable drops Scott off at Harry's hideaway for the scant remainder of his bachelor party, where everyone is... is kind of having an awkward time and attempting to explain bachelor parties to Bishop.
0: It's great. And the way the issue is structured, we haven't covered it this way, but it keeps cutting back to the bachelor party, to things like Archangel moping about how Jean is now taken, Gambit like bugging people and trying to like tease out that maybe they don't want Sabretooth at the mansion either, Iceman getting carded at the entrance. And it's all just the X-Men being the X-Men. It's very much a continuation of what the non-focal X-Men are doing in the background of number 308. And it just really contributes to this of this dense, familial world. And with that, you've got questions. Mika asks via email, with the qualifier that this was a bit of time ago, How can we, as trans readers, lead the conversation around things like Uncanny X-Men number 17? It feels like no one listens to us at all, and so few of us have a pulpit. I don't want to put all the pressure on Jay, but I have no idea how to even start this conversation with the people who need to have it.
1: There are two things I should say to contextualize this, the first is that this this email was edited slightly to take out a little bit of the context that was more specific to Uncanny X-Men 17, and second, that that context had to do with a scene in it that was very, very unsubtly and directly, I I hesitate to even say, an allegorical version of, of, of what, was, what was unambiguously transpanic murder. Um... And there was a lot of subsequent conversation around that and a lot of subsequent frustration. I'll link to what I thought was one of the the sort of better thought out responses to it, specifically from a trans writer um, in the visual companion to this episode.
0: And to clarify, this is the most recent Uncanny X-Men number 17 from the volume of Uncanny X-Men that is still going right now. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So going back to the question, ah god, I wish I knew the answer to this, because it is exhausting, and uh, frankly, the number of cisgender comics professionals and critics who are consistently there for trans voices is not what it should be. So my main answer, honestly, is to keep talking when and where you feel like you can. This is a point where delegating to allies can be a really useful thing to remember to either to jump in directly or to amplify trans voices or both. That said, it gets incredibly, incredibly exhausting to have those conversations in public over and over and over and over again. And I think and I want to emphasize, Mika, that there's a lot of power in having those conversations with each other. Because one of the things that that's hardest about being a trans person in the world in general, and especially in things like the con- conversation around Uncanny X-Men number 17, and more recently, in fact, immediately recently as I record this around Man Eaters number 9, is the sense of isolation and the pressure for every individual one of us to speak for the trans community as the block that we're really not. And the big antidote to that, the one that I really want, that I wish I had a way to enact, is massive culture shift. But in the meantime, um, it is so, so important to me to keep having and seeking conversations that aren't primarily for a cis audience, that no matter how much explaining and contextualizing I do and speaking in public contexts that I do, that I also get to talk about this stuff with people who've got that common frame of reference um, where i can react honestly and not have to devote time to defining or justifying my existence let alone my perspective and to remember that there are more of us out there who are making stuff and doing stuff and responding to stuff and reacting to stuff and while It would be really damn nice to have more support and amplification, especially from uh, cisgender peers and folks who are incomparable and and more visible and central positions. Those aren't the only conversations that matter. Well said, Jay. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. And some of those tears of support come from, with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. Today, the microphone goes to Magneto, who may or may not be a hallucination.
0: I have been many things in my long years. Victim. Instrument of vengeance. Villain. Mentor. Master of magnetism. But now... I find myself in a new role, that of the brutally honest but ever-correct conscience within you all. Nate Dupree, you have spent your life attempting to teach others to be their best selves, to show the misguided by example or advice how to change their lives in the ways that are so clearly correct. But perhaps you should admit the truth, every lesson, Every redirection has been one step on the road to kidnapping them from a circus, rocketing them into space and then back to your volcano, and having a robot nanny raise them from their new infancy by force-feeding them baby food. Matthew Boda. From childhood, you've always been careful to find the right moment. To bring up a difficult topic, to address a friend at their most receptive, to share the perfect instant of connection. But you and I both know the same fact to be true. There is one and only one time to truly ensure that your audience's attention is yours. At a funeral, as you threaten to drop a space station on top of it. And now, if you'll excuse me, I must return to Charles' fascinating subconscious. He knows in his heart of hearts that he should really grow back that foxy depression beard. That shit was hot. And
1: with that... Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter.
0: New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions, to every
0: episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. Next week, Scott and Gene tie the knot for real. And Kitty Pride is there to document it.